You're listening to Inside Out with Turner and Seth. And we have a little time with someone here, and um, we wanted to get this episode out right away. This is an emergency tweener, so there will be no music, because we have on the phone the lighting designer and director for Humphreys McGee, the creative content producer for CID Entertainment, star of episode six of our podcast, which he flew out of his way at his own expense to participate in. Indicate- uh, to be fair, I was single in those days, so you know, there wasn't a lot going on in the winter. Also a major supporter of our show, and you hear his voice, that is Jefferson Welfel. Welcome, Jefferson. Thank you. I did not realize this was an emergency, but I'm honored to be here. Seth, emergency noise, please. <laughs> couple quick things about your employers. Um, that was really quick, Rob. Thank you. A couple quick things about uh, your employers. Humphreys McGee is about to release uh, It's Not Us on January 12th. That's our brand new CD. Check it out. Check out their Twitter feed or our Twitter feed if you want samples. But the whole thing will be out soon. And also, if you are a fan of this gentleman, you can go to Humphreys.com and check out their tour dates. But I would direct you to February 2nd and 3rd, the Wings Event Center in Kalamazoo. And February 16th and 17th, the Explore Asheville Arena in Asheville. Jefferson, tell our listeners. Wait, wait, wait. Jefferson, before you do, Rob, can you take a deep breath? You are going super fast today. Did you take a lot of coffee? Sorry. I'm no, it's, it's okay. I mean. It's an emergency, Seth. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Why would I choose those shows, Jefferson? Tell my listeners. To uh, uh, Probably. Now you're asking me why you're asking certain questions. I would say uh, (laughs) probably because they're arena shows, which are still somewhat rare for us at the uh, stage of the career we're currently in. And from a a light show perspective? Uh, It's a larger canvas. Uh, We probably won't have any additional lights um, because it's part of a tour for for bigger shows like New Year's or Halloween. We we bring in uh, some extra lighting. We have extra crew. We have extra budget. Uh, for bigger shows, but those are just part of a tour. So it'll be our standard show in a larger space, which can sometimes give the illusion that it's a larger light show. There's there's a lot more negative space. So if our, uh, let's say hypothetically, our lights are typically five or six feet apart, maybe we'd make them seven or eight feet apart. And just that little nuance um, gives the appearance that it's a, a larger light show. And also you can be right up front at the, at the show without smelling the band, and that's always a benefit. Right. Okay, but now. to the arena's defense, there are more lights there. I mean, there's just more lighting. Just hall lighting, uh, seat lighting. Okay, we're going to stay on oh. point here, Seth. Sure. Uh, now, we're going to start with a sort of, uh, what was a sort of an addendum to the, in, uh, to the Light Side podcast, which is done by Luke Stratton, who, first of all, a great lighting designer, but also I have found is a very good broadcaster, and he exemplifies it on here. And, and that is why that is one of the three podcasts that I recommended to uh, – Osiris, the other two being Sound Podcast and Strangers Stopping Strangers. But um, Luke uh, really stays out of your way and lets your character come out. And one of the things you talk about is how you have a thematic build to your show. Now, that's all. That's always the goal. Yes. So the uh, the challenge is that the music is different every night. Like most of the bands that we discuss, you know, whatever genre you want to call it, jam bands or. <clears throat> however you want to refer to the live music community in which we reside, the, the shows are different every night. So while um, I always use a, an example of someone like, you know, Tom Petty, rest in peace, but great rock and roll show, same set list every night. So the lighting designer can, you know, plan out theatrically what's going to happen. You know, I'm gonna, he's going to introduce this lighting cue at this song at this point of the night because it's, you know, the arc of the show thematically. 
um, is going to be the same. So you can plan accordingly. Uh, Tom Petty, the example that I always use because we just had lasers was that, you know, similar to David Gilmore's most recent tour, they saved the lasers for just one song at the end of the night. And thematically, that really works. Um, it's, sure. It's difficult. It's difficult to plan for that if the set list is different every night, because if the band plays that the same song that they would have played as an encore, which, as you guys both know, it happens all the time. They might open with the song they encored with the previous week or so. You don't want to use your lasers on the first song. So gotcha, there's a little gotcha. bit of give and take. Yes. Are you saving those lasers for specific songs, though, or do you use them for just any? Well, let's hang on uh, well, on the lasers because we're, we're we'll get to the lasers in a minute. What I'm saying is, you Steph, like this is an emergency. Yeah, when, <laughs> when you have like your, I'll be right back. The toys in your back pocket that you want to build to, do you sometimes like to spring them on the fans early, like fish opening with a Harry Hood kind of thing, and surprise them with uh, introducing an element out of place? Was that a question, Rob? I, I couldn't yeah. tell if you were talking to me or scolding Seth, but um, <laughs> both is welcome. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean that is that is a that is a great question, and it's something I grapple with often. Um, is you know I, I do have some pages in the lighting console that I've labeled as set two only, as a way to kind of remind myself, don't touch this, don't go to this, no matter what. But yeah, there are certain songs that the band might typically close a set with, and on a given night, maybe they're playing an arena, maybe it's an anniversary show, whatever the reason, maybe it's a request. Um, sometimes they come out swinging for the fences and might, you know, open with. Or gluten cat, for well, example. And another thing, Derek Trucks uh, once in an interview told me that he works operates on the rule of thirds, where a third of the show is for the hardcore fans, a third of the show is, is for the people who see them once a year, and then a third of the show is for the people who've never seen them before. Do you have that in your mind at all when you're putting together and programming the light show? No, I've never heard of that. Uh, to me, the rule of thirds was always about you know composition in the lens of a camera, um, still photography or or film, they, they always refer to the, the rule of thirds, but uh, that's a little bit off topic, I guess. Um, never, never thought of it in mathematical terms. I do try to operate under the assumption that the light show for a band as complex as Umphreys is kind of acting as not only a way to enhance the show musically, but to kind of dumb down the technical aspects of somebody who doesn't know how to count in an odd time signature, or you know, if my mom goes to the show, and you, they're not in on all the nuances from a technical perspective. So I often think of the metaphor of the little bouncing ball that would go over the, uh, you know, if you're watching a, a Christmas cartoon and it, it kind of shows you what syllable to accent while you're singing along. Um, that's, that's what I think of with a band like Umphreys that the light show can kind of do is to be a filter to those that might not be as technically uh, inclined to, to pick up on the nuances of the music. Could you dumb down something for me? Could you explain a hot look? Oh, yeah, that's uh, hot looks and cool looks are just refer to the, you know, a, a cool scene would be blues, purples, and greens. A hot scene would be reds, magentas, oranges, yellows, and yellows and magenta kind of straddle the line. Um, I tend to put more magentas in with, with cool colors, but they, they obviously work with, with both uh, hot or cold. Um, one thing you've always said about Umphreys McGee, you love the way they challenge you with um, odd signatures, and you pointed out in the Luke Stratton video with Der Blut and Cat. Can you give us a couple other songs that are examples of odd time signatures that you had to learn along the way? Oh, sure. Uh, gosh, there's so many. Um, Just a couple ones. Know, that, yeah. Well, the beginning of Ocean Billy, 
Um, I'm not going to sit here and try to spell out the math because I did a lighting workshop at a Humphreys McGee event that I believe it was called summer school a few years back. And, and the, the whole point was, you know, fans can go that, and most of them were aspiring musicians. There was no rule, but a lot of them were <clears throat> aspiring musicians or aspiring sound engineers that wanted to kind of learn from us in a more of a hands, hands-on environment. And when I was giving my lighting workshop, I, I described the way that I count in the beginning and the outro of Ocean Billy. Um, and it's always, it's always right. I'm just counting it in a way that kind of is a, it's a little bit off. Um, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit here and try to recount it because I have my own way of doing it. Uh, I will point out though that Ryan Stasek, our bass player, came up to me after the fact and said, hey, that's the way I count it too. Um, so, I mean, it's all personal preference of, of how you get there, but I'm trying to think of a better example than that. Um, I, I never got the call in the pre-interview. I would have come prepared. Um, oh, that's all right. We can, it's we can all right. It's just an emergency call yeah. here. Just there's, an emergency. There's so, there's so many of them. I mean, it's like almost every song, uh, with the exception of, you know, newer stuff, but a lot of the, a lot of the older stuff has odd meters all over the place. Hey, Rob, why don't you ask another question? It's funny, Seth, he calls it Derblut and Cotton. No, I don't call it that. I, I may have misspoke oh. one time. It lives on the internet now forever. Yeah, because I know you know the song so structurally so well that it's the last thing on your mind when you're working, but you still could know the titles. Again, we're, right. ta- we're talking with Jeff Wafflin, and uh, I, have a, <laughs> I have a couple quotes that, uh, from this that um, I think are indicative of uh, you know, your excellence, I guess we can say. Uh, one is raindrops, if you capture them the right way, can be more psychedelic than Paisley bullshit. Can you elaborate? Yes, I was. I was talking about the library of video cues that that pretty much anyone who uses video. I wasn't. I wasn't speaking about the Capitol Theater in general. I was talking about the medium of, you know, video projection. And a lot of times, the there's only so much you can do. So a lot of the kind of stock looks that come. And I've had some experience in, like ten years ago using video projection, and you know you have to pay a bunch of extra money normally if you're going to use content. And so a lot of the content that comes with the gear can be purposefully psychedelic. And I find that a lot of times that's a little bit cheesy when people are trying to be psychedelic and, you know, nature without even trying or, you know, who knows what he or she or it is doing, but it's, it's just organically um, to me way more interesting to look at. And you offer a potential delineation between, and this might be for the hardcores, but the Jimmy Stewart's and the Jazz Odysseys, which um, I don't know what the the people I look up to as experts in Humphreys are, are starting to move away from these terms and move more toward implied improv and stuff. But still, the Jimmy Stewart's more of a structured thing, and the Jazz Odyssey's more of open-ended improv. Do you think? Um, did you get any email after that? You said the fans will email me if I'm wrong. Did you get any feedback on that? Does that seem to be accurate? Did not get any emails, uh, which is fine. Um, when, when I started working for Umphreys McGee, they never sat me down and gave me a crash course to get me up to the present. It was just kind of like, I found stuff out as we went along. Uh, some of which I talked about in that episode with Luke, for example, Stasek telling me that I was, there was, they were dropping one beat every other time in in that section of Derbalut and Cat. Um, so yeah, as far as the jazz odyssey versus a Jimmy Stewart, I know very well the history of the Jimmy Stewart because I included it in the Real to Real documentary uh, a couple years ago. Um, so we went back and we, you know, we found the original 
time, and I'm not going to get into the whole story. You can Google it. Um, but yeah, Jazz Odyssey, I think, is is a uh, is an open improv section that maybe they did not discuss a set of parameters such as a key or a tempo ahead of time. I, I could be totally wrong. And, you would have to ask Joel. And I didn't know you had incorporated video elements at the Capitol Theater shows until this video. Um, and you say uh, is uh, to offer potential analogy, adding that element. Is it kind of like driving a stick shift versus driving an automatic vehicle? No, it would be like driving a stick shift or an automatic car your entire life. And then suddenly um, you, you're giving you're given a third prosthetic arm and you're asked to perform dental surgery while driving. Uh, and you... Maybe dental surgery isn't the best analogy, but it's to me, it's a it's I have two hands and I've kind of I've, I've understood where my two hands can kind of relate to the music. Um, but to throw a third element in there, um, obviously, I can't control it physically. So I was trying to control it uh, verbally. Um, and it was it was a challenge. But uh, our our lighting crew chief, Louie, um, really stepped up. And that's that's a role, by the way, as much as I'm not used to doing that. He's certainly not used to doing that either. I mean, the crew chief's job is to be on stage and to help him help with the, you know, coordinating with the local crew and all those things that he does that are, you know, invaluable. But calling cues over a headset is something that neither one of us had ever done together before. And I only do it, a, you know, a couple times a year. And I was going to ask you about Louis. Uh, first of all, if you could mention his last name and talk about how he rose through the ranks and made himself. One of the Seth's tenets is um, make yourself, what, what is it? Uh, make yourself needed or make yourself valuable. Make yourself a value. Mm-hmm. And that is something Louis has absolutely done with you guys and, and has now become a vital part of the organization. Could you please uh, elaborate on that? Sure. Well, it's funny. We don't ever call Louis by a last name because Louis is his nickname. His real name is Aaron Minette. And I, I think, or Mayette. My apologies again. We just call him Louis. That was the deal. Um, so Louis is a, is a great example of if you're somebody who wants to work for a band, just be around long enough and have the right attitude. And eventually you probably will. I don't know if it'll work with, you know, you two or the Rolling Stones, but <laughs> bands at most levels. I mean, you hear, you hear stories about guys that have been with bands for 40 years and the, they usually start the same as they, in the early days, they were helping move the gear and they were around when the band was playing bars and yada, yada. Louis was just always around. Uh, I believe he used to make his own merchandise for the Midwest peeps which was, you know, the Midwest states uh, in the Michigan area. Uh, he started, when I was new with the band, he started helping us out with merch. But he, he made it very clear that he wanted to help out with the lights. And we said, okay, we, you know, we put him to work. You're never going to really turn down a, an extra set of hands if it's somebody who's, you know, vetted through your, through yeah. your uh, social network. Um, if it's somebody who's around and, and has already been kind of cleared to be in the building and on the stage and they offer to help you, of course you're going to take the help because – there's local crew every night, but the the thing about local crew is they're they can be really hard workers, but they don't know the nuances of your show and your production. Right. So to have someone like Louie be there every night and say, Oh, okay, I know that this case goes here and this X, Y, and Z does this, eventually over the course of time, um, he proved himself to be not only very reliable but like a joy to work with and um, you know, he didn't have any experience per se with concert lighting. But he has an engineering background, which is, you know, he's way overqualified. And 
you only have to tell him something once typically, which is what I love about him. You know, the first time something happens that he's not sure, you say, do it this way, and he'll do it that way for the rest of the time. And he's very intuitive. You never have to tell him something twice. And he also creates Excel sheets that simplify things for you. Uh, well, that was, I think you're referring to something I told you uh, about the way that we prepared for our New Year's show, where we introduced not only the lasers, but also the BIs, which we had never used. And so that was the first time that Louis had kind of served the role um, as part of our programming team, which we don't ever really have, but because it was New Year's, um, we brought in uh, Elliot Little, who we've worked with for a long time um, on some bigger shows, and I worked with uh, for CID Presents, and Louis was there, and the three of us came up with a really cool system for programming, and, and Louis was kind of, um, I don't want to say note-taker, because that sounds way less important than what he was doing, but he was he was basically cataloging all of our cues and kind of, um, you know, giving input on what looked good and what didn't, but it was it was an invaluable role. Uh, and you mentioned the Midwest, the heartland of our country and the heartland of umfamdom. So it's rare for you to have incorporate these other elements and have to work through someone. But if I am correct, one of the few other times you've done it, you spoke about in our episode six. Is that not correct? Uh, I don't remember the individual numbers of your episode. <laughs> You're referring to uh, working with the laser technician yeah. at, at one of the many festivals that takes place in that swamp in Florida. Yeah. Well, as Rob calls it, Wani. Y'all going to Wani? Oh man, you gonna come on down to Wani? It was at that tiny stage that we played a million times. That you know, it's got the lowest ceiling of anywhere. I, I think it was originally a, like somebody's out. Outback deck or something. Um, is but that, that what you're referring to, Rob? Yeah. That, oh, oh uh, Uncle Something's Porch. That was the first time you ever used Uncle lasers. Charles. That was actually the first time you ever used lasers, wasn't it? Uh, no, not the first time. Uh, there's a tiny, tiny little venue in Aspen called the Belly Up. And it's physically probably the smallest venue we play by a lot. And it, it, they also have really high-end production because being Aspen – there's a lot of money to go around and the, the ticket price is always really high because the bands that play there are typically playing way larger venues. So a band like widespread panic will go play there. And it's like a, I don't even remember 250, $300 ticket or whatever it is. Um, so they, you know, they do a great business and they put a lot of money back into the production and they actually have two lasers. And it's really funny to me because not only do they have lasers, they have a video wall too. And so you turn the lasers on because you feel this obligation to use them. If you're going to be in a club where there's free lasers, you have to use them. Um, and it's you feel like it should be this big moment where the crowd's going to kind of gasp. But number one, a lot of the people that live there, they see those lasers every time they go to the venue. Number two, the, the length of the laser due to the proximity to the ceiling is about three feet. So you see this little piece of dental floss come out and just hits the ceiling, and that's kind of the end of the trick. Um, so we do that every year, um, and it's so anticlimactic that people don't typically even mention it after the show. <laughs> you know, Rob, as well as you know Jefferson, I didn't I, know that. I, no, as well as you know Jefferson, though, yeah. you don't. You didn't know the other fact of him and lasers about belly up. And I did not. Well, know no, that. not that one. The other one. What? Well, he's a champion laser tag. When he was, uh, I think, eighteen years old in the uh, in his region, he was the champion of laser tag. Surprised you didn't know that. As the, cur as the I, I, I didn't even know that, Seth. Oh, come on. As the colonel would say, silence. Um, so what was the tipping point for you to use lasers on your own in the Humphrey show? 
Uh, there was a couple of different factors. Uh, number one, I wanted to wait until the technology got to a point where I could be the one executing the cues, or to put that in layman's terms, I wanted to be the one hitting the button. There's so much subtlety and nuance to hitting a button because, <laughs> and I'm not saying my button is bigger than anyone else's, but <laughs> if you hit that button a fraction of a second earlier or a fraction of a second late, uh, depending on the attributes and lots of other things that come into play as far as the uh, the technical specs of, you know, I'm not going to dive into all that, but I wanted to be the one hitting the button because it's, it's so hard for me to even hit the button uh, correctly on a lot of the songs that I've been doing for 10 years. I, I think it would be unfair to expect somebody else to, to waltz in off the street, even if we give them the songs to learn. Um, it's unrealistic that they're going to execute those cues perfectly. And I've had experience with trying that in, in different contexts over the years. We brought in um, pyrotechnics, for example, and we planned for months and months and months, gave the exact songs, gave the exact timings, tried to explain it as best I could, um, as articulately as I could. And it's almost like no matter how much prep you do, the end result is uh, nothing like how you planned it. So we, we take so much pride and so much care that goes into the Umphreys McGee show. I, I didn't want to leave that all to kind of chance or to somebody miss a miscommunication or somebody misinterpreting a, a head nod or whatever it is. So a few years ago, they, they finally made um, a profile for the Grand MA console that I use that would uh, allow you to control lasers. Um, the Disco Biscuits, for example, they used to have a guy that would you know, be at the show and and Johnny, our good, their uh, amazing lighting designer, would communicate to him, and, and they were kind of a two-man team. That that stopped happening a couple years. I forget the exact timeline, but two or three years ago, that stopped happening because now Johnny can control the lasers himself. And similarly, I wanted to wait until that point. Uh, there was another couple quick issues. Uh, number one, we just we're always trying to kind of reinvent the wheel. We're always trying to stay uh, technologically up to speed. Um, so it was kind of like one of those things that every time we had a big show, people would bring it up to me within the organization. Um, and it just, this, this time around the kind of the, uh, the stars aligned. Um, the other aspect is they, they now have a moving laser, which allows you to hang it up in a truss and position the pan and tilt in such a way. Um, so that it, technically it can hit They're rated so they can hit an audience member in the eyes if you're 30 or more feet away. That's still something I tried to avoid. Um, but with a place like the Fillmore in Denver with such a low ceiling, it was kind of hard uh, to avoid that. But if you did get hit in the eyes, you're okay. Unless you were closer than 30 feet, in which case, please seek medical attention immediately. <laughs> well, Seth loves when I don't know things. So one thing as I was looking over things to uh, chat with you about, one thing I didn't know was that you had to take down the Fillmore rig entirely and put up your own, and I'm wondering, was that because of the lasers, and have you ever done that before at a venue? Oh, almost every time. Unless oh, really? Going to a venue. Well, it depends on the venue. If we're going into an arena, if we're going into a theater, um, bigger venues like that are typically a blank slate. So when we go into those arenas, obviously those arenas are for hockey or basketball, we're going to go in the state. We're going to, not us, but somebody will build the stage. We'll show up. We'll hang our points. We'll drop in our trusses. Uh, if we go to a place like the House of Blues in various cities, they already have a whole lighting rig 
and it's designed so that if a band comes through without a light show, which I guess is a lot of bands because it's kind of the, the model for a lot of these venues at that size, uh, House of Blues in Cleveland, House of Blues in Boston, any of the House of Blues or, or similar type rock clubs, um, they're designed for you to go in and they have a house lighting designer. And if you have your own LD, they'll kind of teach you their system or they'll they'll run it for you if you don't have a lighting designer. Whenever we go into a House of Blues, we advance it and we say we're bringing in X number of these lights and we prefer to have blank trust. Um, depending on, and I, by the way, I'm not involved in any of the discussions. Uh, that, that's all between Louie and our production manager, Bob, um, who do all the advanced work and I'm indebted to for, for doing all that work. Um, but they have the conversation. And I think if you're kind of a younger man, you don't sell as many tickets, um, they might be less inclined to move stuff for you. But it seems like the the longer you do it and the more times you return to a venue and the more you get to know the staff and if they like you, they're more likely to, to do you that favor. Um, certain places are more strict than others because you're, you're causing a lot of extra work. You know, if you're if you're a house LD at one of these venues and you see Humphreys McGee is coming in, you're like, oh, great. I got to go in three hours early and strike our entire rig to make room for our life. Um, but obviously, from our point of view, we're spending all this money to rent all this gear. We want to use it at all of these shows. So it's kind of a, a give and take. And what about the cost on these lasers? Uh, have these has the cost come down significantly, especially now that you're able to use them with your board? Or... Uh, they haven't come down significantly. They're, they're still uh, too expensive for us to tour with regularly. Um, and when I say too expensive, I mean, we we could decide to put all of our money into lasers and then have you know a much smaller light show. And the reason I don't want to do that is because percentage wise, I don't think Humphrey's show lends itself to the sounds of what I would consider to be laser enhanced music. I think that, you know, the way we used them over the New Year's run was about the right amount. Although on New Year's, I kind of just, you know, used them as almost every song because it was like, okay, well, we got through the first two nights being very, uh, you know, patient. I think the first night we didn't use them at all until the encore. Um, but I think on average, you know, three to five songs a night is the appropriate amount. And you get into a, an interesting situation when you spend a bunch of money on on an on element of production, um, which I was very careful to avoid with the New Year's run, where the money is kind of influencing your artistic direction because you might be in the back of your head thinking, oh, uh, we spent all this money on lasers. I've only used them twice. I should really use them a couple more times. But on the set list, these last two songs don't really lend themselves to lasers. So then you're kind of stuck. So, I would I would know. never be a good uh, lighting designer for that matter because I'm all I would be the whole time oh my god I spent this much money on it we're getting use out of it he'd probably interrupt the improv all the time too Ooh. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's a joke <laughs> so I thought it was first oh, wait, of all wait. Jeff has <laughs> always really uh, been you've always honored the bands you worked for and kept left revealing things to the band members themselves. To, to even the point of frustration for me sometimes. But anyways, I it was uh, really, <coughs> I didn't even know these lasers were coming. So then when I saw it, that the first song you chose to use them on was Comfortably Numb, that held a lot of meaning to me because, uh, what as you've always said about Pink Floyd holding them out, you know, and, and, and often buying them just to use on one song, which is that song. But also because their lighting director, is it Mark Brickman, it, it is a huge is a huge influence on you and designed the Capitol Theater uh, light rig, right? Uh, I don't think he did the light rig. I believe that was Chris Reagan, oh. uh, form, formerly of Mo, and now with uh, Dead & Co. He designs lots of uh, Peter Shapiro's festivals, such as Lock-In 
Yeah, he, um, he's excellent. I believe he designs the rig for Mountain Jam. Um, very talented, but uh, yeah, I, I believe, and I could be wrong on this one, but I'm pretty sure he designed the lighting rig, and they brought in Mark Brickman to consult on some level about the projection. Um, and again, I hear so much stuff. It, I'm pretty sure that that happened, but you might have to Google that or, or get Pete Shapiro on the show as a, as a guest. But was that you? Uh, were you like, if we're going to use lasers, I'd really like to use it on this song first as a tribute to Mark Brickman. Uh, I wasn't thinking specifically about Mark Brickman. I was thinking um, I need to make a list of laser songs. And uh, I knew that coming up with Umphrey songs is, besides Triple Wide or, or Wappy Sprayberry was going to be a challenge. Um, because while most of the Disco Biscuits catalog lends itself to lasers, as far as when they're improvisation, like the improvisational sections, that, that the band's style really fits well with lasers. Uh, Umphrey's, I think, again 10 to 20 percent of a show might work with lasers so it was kind of a procrastination thing i made a list i don't even mean a list of of actual songs i made like the number like one two three and i was like staring at this blank page and so i was like all right first song obviously comfortably numb uh, it's in the band's repertoire i know they're they don't need to practice it more than once jake's gonna play the solo perfectly i just kind of put it down um kind of as a joke but also like hey you should really play this and then when I sent it into the band, um, Joel is typically the resident statistician. You know, he can he can kind of tell you <laughs> off the top of his head the last time they played comfortably numb in that comfortably numb in that market. And had they played it within the last year or two, they probably wouldn't have played it. But I think they hadn't played it since like 2011. Um, and and so that was kind of an easy sell. I didn't even really push hard for that. But I, I knew this is a slam dunk all around um, if they choose to play it. And, and I know when you're working, you're wearing the headphones, so it can be hard to hear things, but did you hear a crowd response when they started Comfortably Numb and the, and, the, and the lasers hit? Not at all. And if there was a crowd reaction, I was, I've never been more nervous in my life uh, in the context of running a light show. My hand was shaking. Really? Like, hit it, hit it, hitting the button, I was like, I forgot how to do it. I was like, wait, do I hit my hand on this little piece of glass here on the touch screen? Like, my hand was shaking because we held out on we had those lasers like ready to go all day and we had to come up with a whole system of making sure i didn't like hit the fader to bring up the grandmaster early we had this like it was like a nuclear silo where we had like this button has to be pressed over here and this fader has to come up over here and we made it that whole time without accidentally using the lasers and uh we also programmed cue to cue that song um in a way that we don't typically have time to do, nor would we, because the, the band doesn't play everything perfectly. Um, and well, they, they may play it perfectly, but they don't play it the same every time. Um, but I knew Comfortably Numb was gonna be note for note, the album version. Um, so me and Elliot spent a, a couple days, I, I spent most of the Christmas break going over it in my head and kind of coming up with an amalgam of the version that appears on Pulse. Um, do you guys remember that? concert dvd back in 94 or whatever absolutely um and then the most recent live in pompeii david gilmore and i also went to three of the shows on that tour where he just uses it on the one song and he uses the lasers differently um in 94 versus 2016 so i i kind of came up with a way that i thought worked well with both now when they're twinkling and spinning are you controlling the speed of those or is that uh, programmed in advance 
Uh, a little bit of both, depending on the clip. I mean, these lasers all originate with like a clip of video that's that's looping. And so depending on the content, um, I can always control the rate, but some of them speed up and slow down a little bit more smoothly than others. Um, what you're seeing in the video is is not the rate that you were seeing if you were there with the oh, naked eye. That, that really? Due to the, yeah, that was due to the scan rate of the, the cameras being different than the scan rate of the lasers. Um, That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Because I watched it like three or four times, four times this oh, morning. I, I, go ahead. Yeah, I thought I thought about it a lot. Um, I, I won't go into the details of, of trying to warn people that, that it might look different on video, but... Um, that's the reason why. Because there is one point where they seem to be moving at a little quicker rate than the music is. So it wasn't necessarily that way in the room. No, no. I'm I'm probably the most sensitive about things moving too quickly um, than anything when it comes to lighting. So, I mean, that if you saw that with the naked eye, that, that intro where they come in, it's real slow. It's a, it, my sweet spot is typically about a quarter of the tempo. I also... I also noticed that Jake moved moved to the center of the stage to take the solo. Was that something you directed him to do, or is that something he did on his own? Uh, it was an idea that I had the night before because that, the iconic um, lighting cue where you see David Gilmore standing center stage taking the solo, and every light on the circle truss is is hitting him. It's it's it looks like a guitar god moment. Um, it just wouldn't have looked like that if he was off to the side. Uh, so I was sitting there trying to, to program that look, and obviously we don't have a big circle truss, but there's still something to be said for having every light in the rig meeting dead center. So as as I was programming, I just kind of thought, oh, I, I bet we could convince Jake to move to center stage for that. And uh, he he gets it. He, I mean, David Gilmore is one of his all-time favorites. So uh, it didn't really take a lot of arm twisting. Well, actually, I have four final off-topic questions, Seth. So if you have any more laser questions, or, or Jeff, if you have anything else you want to share, do it now. You guys uh, No, that's okay. Thank you, Rob. Uh, I leave the emergency broadcasting to you. <laughs> Thank you, Seth. That's very kind. All right, Jefferson. First of all, um, when we talked with Chris Carota, he talked about how sometimes he accidentally goes to his 10 and has to have an 11 to go to when he's kind of mashed out. What is your 11? You follow what I'm asking? Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I, I get it. Uh, thank you. Um, what What is my 11? Do you mean what specific cue? Yeah, or what Yeah, what do you go to when you accidentally went to your 10 and it wasn't the resolution, the resolve or whatever, and you have to go to something else beyond that? I'd probably go back to like an 8 or 9 and nobody would know the difference. <laughs> That's tricky. No, I mean, it's true. I mean, I understand what Chris is saying. I mean, for me, I have levels, but... A lot of them are just labeled, you know, fucking sick or set to only. There, there's a lot of tens. Um, so, yeah, there's times where I maybe am guessing that this is going to be the final time around in a in a solo or an improv section, and they keep going. There's also it also happens the reverse too, where I think, oh, we got plenty of time, and I'm gonna I'm gonna hang back with a seven or an eight here. Um, it's kind of like dating in college, and then eventually thinking we're going to get to a 10 and we never get to the 10. So now, um, I know number two, number two, number two. Um, I know when you lived in Brooklyn, you would often, when Umphreys wasn't on tour, work at Brooklyn bowl or do uh, lighting gigs at, uh, 
at other venues. And I know now you're working for CID Entertainment. Um, I know there's a lot going on at CID Entertainment. Was, it was tried to find out what, but I didn't have the right pass, Seth. But anyways, uh, would you, if a Philadelphia venue came up to you and said, hey, hey, uh, Jefferson, we'd love you to do a, sh one, a show once a month or do this special show or that show, would you have the time and inclination to consider it? Probably not at this point, uh, only because there's, there's a few reasons. And this is something I noticed working at Brooklyn Bowl. And I love Brooklyn Bowl and I love, <coughs> you know, such a such a great staff there. And they, they treat everyone with kindness. And, you know, Peter Shapiro has done a great job really instilling like his values of like, you know, regardless of the genre, that the fan experience comes first and they treat everyone with respect and the security guards wear shirts that say welcome instead of security. And like all those little nuances really – the vibe, important, but the vibe, yeah, the vibe, exactly. Peter Shapiro loves talking about the vibe, but yeah. he really cares about it. One you know, of the top, translated. one of the top three important things about creating a vibe is is the, is creating a vibe. Sorry to interrupt you there, Waffle. Can you go back and finish what you're saying? <laughs> yes. By the way, to, to extrapolate that onto a larger scale, the GD50 handing out the roses again, same kind of thing, creating a vibe, even within a stadium of fifty something thousand people. Anyway, that being said, uh, creatively it didn't lend itself to, it wasn't very challenging for me because the big national acts that were coming through always had a light show, always had a light guy. So they would come in, they would set up all their lights and I was acting basically as a liaison for their lighting designer. Uh, more often than not, in my experience, the bands didn't have LDs, which meant that they weren't at a level where the light show was super important to their show or they didn't have the budget for it. Um, and in that case, I, you know, after running lights for Umphreys McGee, there's not a lot of bands that challenge you musically in the same way. Um, but specifically, it's the fact that at the time, I think that the, the rule has changed a little bit, but at the time you weren't allowed to use Haze um, in Brooklyn Bowl. And a lot of the, what I do as a lighting designer is kind of dependent on Haze. Um, that's just the, the style that I do. So um, at this point, I get more creatively out of uh, editing video, which is what I do in my day job here at CID. Um, I've always been a video editor ever since I was a kid before I ever did lighting design. And I know it, it may seem weird to some, but for me, it, it taps into the same creative part of my brain, uh, editing videos as, as doing lighting. So to me, that's like a nice kind of compliment. You know, what's... I don't mean, <laughs> what? go ahead. It's just a compliment to, you know, going from lighting design to video is kind of seamless for me now creatively. Um, there's just not enough free nights to, to do that. A lot of times when I'm free tours, I'm, I'm home for maybe Monday and Tuesday, and then I go back out again on Wednesday. So I'd rather just spend that time with my girlfriend at home on the couch. One of the things even lighting directors forget about Hayes, it was the lead track of the Bobby and Midnight solo album. Thank you. Thank you. Festival. Oh. Hey, that's the lead track uh, side too. Okay, number three, Chris Myers. We pissed him off at Chastain, and he is not, he's gone radio silent. Can you help repair that relationship? We really want to sit down with him and do a serious interview, and we did not represent ourselves well. Could you help with that? Please, please. Well, I don't understand. I, I'm going to need to know what happened. I mean, how did you piss him off? We brought him backstage to do an interview as an intro to another band's, but um, Seth had imbibed, and I was excited that he uh, with the musicians, and so we were interrupting him even more than usual, and he got frustrated. And I haven't talked to him since, and I really want to do an interview with him. You've got to remind him that we're actually, when we're really focused, we can do a good job. Can you help? 
uh, I'm going to need like some, some, uh, some proof that you guys have changed. I can't, I can't bring this to him yet. Cause I, I mean, there's still been some, Ouch. some I jokes that kind of have... didn't land well today. There's been some interrupting. Less interrupting than normal waffle. Less interrupting. As a matter of fact, I'm looking at the uh, sound um, waves here that are tracking the the conversation, and mine is a flat line for 99.9 percent of this interview. So, uh, and Rob's is uh, bulky at times, mostly in the center. But uh... okay, question four, Jefferson. Question for Jefferson. Question for Jeff. Yeah. Oh, that's clever. That's right. Four and four. That is clever. Thank you. Thank you. Um, have you been ring shopping? Have I been ring shopping? Ringtone or like onto a finger ring? A finger ring. Okay. Have I been ring shopping? I don't know what you mean. Like, are you contemplating marriage? I mean, that seems a little bit personal, a little bit off topic. I, I'm going to refer that one to Chris Myers. All right, I'm Freeze McGee, February 2nd and 3rd at the Wings Event Center in Kalamazoo, February 16th and 17th at the Explore Asheville Arena in Asheville. Both of those are, uh, Marcus King is opening. Uh, he is the star of episode 43 of Inside Out WTNS. Um, all of hey, Umphrey's- Rob, Rob, could you ever foresee wedding vows that included, um, you know, and then that moment when I heard on the podcast that Jefferson wanted to marry me, I knew that everything was going to work out. <laughs> Can you understand that I like awkward moments? I understand that. It just seems like not the way that I would necessarily want to uh, make it. Sure, but you understand that your reaction to that might be funny to some. So it's not that I'm thinking you're going to announce anything. It's that it's funny how you would react. Now we're never going to get Chris. Now it's like like a normal phone conversation between us. If I'm going to declare my my undying love for my beautiful girlfriend i'm not going to do it on a tweener episode maybe if we get like a full 90 minute episode we can talk sure but i did get the reaction i wanted so i'm, I'm happy so anyways we uh go to umphreys.com slash tour see all the tour dates but again jefferson's work in my opinion at its best is in these arenas where, as he says, he has the full canvas, and that's February 2 and 3, Wings Event Center in Kalamazoo, February 16th and 17th, Explore Asheville Arena, Marcus King opening both of them, the Wonderkin, wonderful player, episode 43 if you want more of him, and thank you for your time, Jefferson, and really, I am, what are you doing? Stop that. Okay, yeah, finish it out, finish it out, Rob. Uh, aside from you being a friend of mine and supportive of the show, I truly love Humphreys McGee, and you have enhanced their live... It, experience so much yeah. I'm truly grateful to you for that so but, keep it up and well, thanks, uh, Waffle tell her tell her Brooke tell Brooke thank you for listening folks we'll be back soon and uh, we love you all peace alright alright thanks all right, Waffle thank when's that going to be on uh, we're going right to put it right out we're going to put it right now we're putting it right out Okay. All right, bye. Cool.